If you have your Bibles, I want to ask you to join uh, me in Romans chapter 16. Romans 16, we at, here at Salem have been going through the letter of Romans. Um, we've been spending a lot of time there. And it's a pretty amazing book. We were only going to go through chapter 8, but then God said, let's do something different. And we've had a great time. In my opinion, what God has done in, in my life through the book of Romans has, has been um, has really convicting. I would love to say the word incredible, but it's honestly just been convicting. Um, I like to use the phrase around here, God has punched me in the face with both fists studying the book of Romans. And then he has given some of us, myself and Pastor Dwayne, the privilege of turning the Bible towards you on a Sunday as God works in our hearts. And today I want to look at the whole chapter, chapter 16, where we look at an unordinary church. Now, normally when we get to a letter, we get to the end and we get to the greetings where it says, greet this person, greet this person, greet this person. Our first thought is, this really has nothing to do with me. There's, we have this kind of a little bit, I'll say it for me, I have a little bit of arrogance when I get to a passage like this and say, there's nothing I can glean from a greeting. This is like reading somebody else's birthday card. And so I want to take a look at this passage today because I really believe there's something amazing that God has to say here. In this final portion, Paul is giving his greetings to the people there in Rome. And he also mentions various individuals and groups who have helped him in his ministry. And then he encourages these Roman Christians to continue to greet one another in Christian love. I'm going to read verses 1 through 27. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of all the saints, and help her in whatever way she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Apanidas, who is the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, my fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet, the, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphenia, Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Anxicritus, Philagon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogius, Julia, Nerissus, and his sister, and Olympus. And all the saints are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ with their own appetites, but, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For their obedience is known to all. So that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me, and the whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. 
Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Will you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for this opportunity now to open your word and study it and to declare it. And I pray for us today. I pray that we would hear your word. If I say anything today that's my opinion, let it be forever forgotten in the ears of those who are listening. And again, Father, I pray that they would forget that I preached this sermon, but that they would remember the point of the passage. They would remember what it says about you, and that they would remember what it says about all of us. I pray, Father, that you would receive all the honor and glory and change our hearts. Thank you for this time that we've been able to study this wonderful book. God, please help us to be changed by your Holy Spirit as he makes us more like your son Jesus every day. And we pray this in the name that is above every other name, the name of Jesus. Amen. One of my joys as the head of school at Salem Baptist Christian School is to meet people interested in our school. Um, whether you want to work for us, work with us, uh, you want to bring your student here, or you just want to get to know a little about, about us, I get to meet with prospective families, students, uh, even employees, and chance to share the heartbeat of our school with them. I get to elaborate on a little bit on what makes Salem special. I get to brag a bit. Uh, it's a little fun thing for me to do. And one of the things we talk about, one of the things I mentioned to anybody who's thinking about joining our, our school as an employee uh, is you could work anywhere and make a lot more money. What makes you want to work at Salem? I tell parents, you could send your student to any other Christian school. What makes you want to send them to Salem? And that's the thing we do. That's our idea we, we have. And I, I like to tell our students and our families, we've got an unordinary school. And I thought I'd get a little bit more amening from, we're some unordinary people. <laughs> If you're wearing a black shirt, this is like what it must be like to teach a cult. This is, we are some weird people at Salem. We are unordinary. And we embrace that. We like that. It's kind of our thing. It's an unordinary work environment. I mean, our teachers seem like they're having more fun than the students sometimes. I mean, I have to give, the, I'm thinking about giving demerits to teachers. I need you to keep it down. Students are trying to sleep. I mean, it really is a dear place to be. There's, a group, there's group texts that I got in somehow and I can't get out of. I'm like, I had, to, I had to get rid of my, I had to change my phone. I had to get rid of my number. It's still in the lake. I don't want it. And I say that to say, in this final portion of Romans, Paul is giving us a glimpse of what I'm going to call an unordinary church. There's some truth to the statement that there's a church on every corner. Sometimes you can, maybe you feel like you step outside and throw a football to a church of like faith. There's no shortage of churches meeting right now at this moment. And many of us here gathered today are a part or have been a part of many different churches throughout our lives. And, and because of that, church can become very common or it's part of our ordinary routine. We even say the phrase, I got to go to church. In our family, I like to mess with their grammar. I say, no, we get to go. A very important vowel change. You don't got to go. We get to go. They roll their eyes. But church can become ordinary. 
very commonplace thing to do. But I want to ask you guys this question. You, you can go to church anywhere. What makes you want to go to, insert your church name here? We've got a lot of guests today. But I want, to ask you, I want you to ask yourself that question, whether you're a Salem member or you're an attender or you go to a different church. You could go to church anywhere. What makes you want to go there? In our discussion today, what I want to do is highlight three things that I think Paul mentions that make up an unordinary church. Here they are. Number one, an unordinary church is shaped by hard work for Christ, but done in love. Hard work for Christ, but done in love. Now, there's an important thing there. I mean, I think sometimes I can, and I'll, by the way, I'm just preaching to me. You're just listening to my self-therapy. A lot of times I can get so caught up in serving Jesus out of some kind of duty, but I'm not doing this in love. In this section, Paul is sending his regards to individuals who make up the church in Rome. And this is really the most exhaustive and comprehensive list found in the New Testament. I don't know if you notice it, but there were a lot of weird names in that group. And I learned a long time ago, just read them and act like you know how to pronounce them. And just go. And I probably butchered all of them. And each of these individuals are commended for their labor for Christ. All of them were. We got 33 names in that section. 24 of them were in Rome. Nine of them were with Paul in Corinth while he wrote it with Tertius as his penman. Look at some of these names. Phoebe is described as being a benefactor for many in this church. Prisca and Priscilla and Aquila are commended for risking their lives for Paul. Epinatus was introduced as the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Mary is described as the one who worked diligently on behalf of the Roman believers. Andronicus and Junia are proclaimed as serving Christ to the point of imprisonment. Urbanus is declared to be a co-worker of Paul in the ministry. Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Persis are commended for their hard work for Christ, and the list could go on. In each of these instances, Paul is careful to give credit where credit is due to those who have served Christ faithfully, even for some of them to the point of imprisonment and risk of life. And Paul made it clear here. And I think a point needs to be made here that the believers mentioned in this passage are commended because their work was done in love. It wasn't just they did the work, but they had a, a loving attitude about it. If you have a child or you're a parent in this room and you've asked your child to do something and they did it grudgingly, you know what that's like. Many of us have served Jesus grudgingly. Let's be honest. When VBS comes around and here would be Pam at your church, it may be your children's director, and you see them coming towards you, and you look for exits. Or you look to have a conversation where they, and they don't walk away. Have you noticed that? You could fake a conversation. They'll stand there. They've got all the time in the world. Because you have to do crafts. Those popsicle sticks are not going to build themselves. <laughs> and you'll do it, but then you get in the car, and you huff. And your spouse may go, what's wrong? Oh, I couldn't get away. And they might even ask, well, you could have said no. And your response, no, I couldn't. It's for church. You lose salvation if you do that. And there's this guilt that comes up. And let's be honest, sometimes we, we operate out of that. 
Sometimes we operate out of grudging. What's cool here is all of these activities were done in love. They didn't see their ministry of proclaiming the gospel and serving others as a chore or an imposition. It was done in love. Out of the love that Christ, or out of a love for Christ for what he's done, and out of a love for those whom we're serving. And and I'm going to ask this question. What what would that look like today here at Salem Baptist Church this morning? What does it look like for us to do that? Because I might be saying this, and you're going, that's great, Rick, but how how do I avoid having that feeling when Pam comes to see me? How do I have that? How do I avoid that when the nominating committee asks me if I want to serve on this committee? How do I avoid that when somebody asks me for help and I really don't want to? How do I do it? All right. First, we start by looking for ways to applaud the examples of those who had worked hard for Christ's sake. Let's celebrate those things. When Matt and Sarah took this 35 group, a group of 35 students to the beach, they weren't looking for applause. They weren't doing that. But we celebrated them today and thanked them for that. You could go, well, we pay them. Not enough to get buried alive. (laughs) Right? Not enough to to do the things they do and wade through the deep waters they wade in. As we've talked about it today, ministry to students is deep. Long gone are the days when we were in school, we just avoided our teachers at all costs. Teachers, every teacher at Salem and anywhere has to be a counselor, has to be a friend, has to be a pastor, because this is the world we live in. We applaud those who serve like that. Look for ways to do that. Look for ways to honor them for that. By the way, can I add a little side note? Avoid bringing them down while they're serving. Would Matt have enjoyed being buried alive if someone came up and said, hey, Matt, listen, I want you to remember, make sure you turn in the receipts for everything. He's trying to breathe. All right? Don't, hey, make sure the mileage of the, make sure you write down the mileage when you get No, let him serve gladness. We'll take care of everything else. We'll cover all that. We'll make sure it happens. Second, we make special note of the level of this family love and warmth of this Christian friendship seen in this passage. It's a fun word. I I use at Salem a lot at the school, the Salem family. Every email gets sent out, and you're a parent here. You're like, yeah, you do that. I do it on purpose. It's the Salem family. It's a fun place to be, even in the culture we live in. And the reason why I say that is because in a world of broken relationships, the church is so often the first place that people can find love and compassion of a family. Isn't that true? I tell students coming in, I said, listen, I hope that your family is your safe place. I hope the dearest place on earth to you is your home. But I get it. It's not always true. I hope, if that's not it, I hope the church, your local church, wherever it is, is your dear place. But I get it if it's not. But I tell them, I want number three. I want the school to be your dear place. If you don't have it at home, if you don't have it at church, it's here. I want that. And I stole that, basically, from Charles Spurgeon, who once put it, that the church should be the dearest place on earth 
for us. But how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we make sure that the church becomes our dear place? And this one hurts. You ready? We should all become people persons. And you're like, why does that hurt? Because you might know me. I'm not naturally a people person. I struggle with it. You're like, well, you seem good. I fake. I'm just going to tell you. I'm fake. No, I, I can deal with things. Maybe you're like me that you can get peopled out pretty quickly. Anybody else? You have to go home and recharge? I love having people over a house. When Jill says, hey, we're having this family over. Awesome. They have to remember, they've got to know when to leave. I hope you've told them. I hope you told them. And I love, listen, there's some people we've had over their house, they just didn't catch on. It just didn't catch on. Now, some of you are part of that extended family. You, you're there. I mean, I could tell you, hey, lock up when you leave. You're cool. But I have little signals I use. My wife will tell you. She's like, oh, you're going to start the signals? I'm like, yeah. Here's my first signal. Maybe you know. Now you, I'm giving it all away. So if you come over, you're going to see it. It's fine. We're family. All right. When I start doing the whole, yeah, yeah, yep. You know what I mean? That's that southern way of, it's time to go. All right? You don't catch on to that one? I stand up a little bit. I start cleaning up the kitchen. Because usually nobody's going to want to. They'll lie. Can I help? They don't want to, but can I help? And then after a while, still not catching on. Listen, if I go to my room and put on my PJs, that, that should be your indicator. If I sit down looking at you in my PJs, a little too far, all right? Okay? I struggle with being a people person. Now, listen, joking aside, we've got to become people who are committed to putting the needs of others before our own so that there be no obstacle in the way of a clear presentation of the gospel. I've got to get over that. I've got to get over the, I'm sorry, time's up. I'm in my PJs. You've got to go. We'll talk about Jesus later. I've got to get past that. Furthermore, we have to make every attempt at being affectionate. Now, listen, that sounds creepy. And I don't mean to be creepy. And, and I want to clarify that. That doesn't mean that everybody who walks in the door needs just a, a hug. Because there are some people who don't hug. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're good with a fist bump from a distance, okay? You need to know that. There's some people, I, I, but I'm, what I'm talking about is the, the idea of showing affection, being willing to show love and compassion to people where they are and in what they are. Being willing to do that. It means wading in the deep waters of what people are going through. The good, the bad, the celebrating, the mourning, the whole gambit of human life. Affection means simply loving people at their best and in their best, as well as at their worst and in their worst. I love that quote there. It means loving people at their best and in their best, as well as at their worst and in their worst. Beloved, the unordinary church serves one another, as well as the community at large, with a familial, family love that's willing to walk with others through the ebb and flow of life in this fallen world. Second, an unordinary church rejects self-interests, leading to unity in Christ. If you notice this, out of all this greetings, Paul gets one little left hook in. And says, hey, you know what? While I'm talking to you, avoid some people. This section of Paul's conclusion is, is missing the restraint found in Paul's language through the rest of Romans. 
He's been very careful with his language. But then Paul just, just says a very strong word here. Look at verse 17. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Avoid them. See, throughout the history of Christianity, false teachers have come and go. They've always been. And Paul is not explicitly telling us what this false doctrine is in this passage, but he does give us some uh, three things uh, that gives us a reason to avoid whatever this is at all costs. All right? So let's talk about it. Number one, whatever this was, it causes division. It causes division. Because Paul is adamant that anything that destroys the unity and harmony in a church must be called out and avoided. It can't go under the rug. Now, this doesn't mean we allow any idea into our assembly, even if it goes against Scripture. Of course not. Because, brothers and sisters, when biblical truth is attacked, there must be conflict. And as we talked about in a previous section of Romans, love often confronts. We have to do that. I'm not saying that we have this unity or this harmony that sometimes exists in our families or in family um, reunions where we know that was awkward, but we don't address it because we want, they'll go home soon. That's not what this is. This is a time where we go, listen, there's something that needs to be addressed because it's a cancer to the, to the, to the church. We've got to deal with it. Paul is clear that those who seek to cause division in the church must be dealt with. And this isn't something new to Paul. It's not something Paul just thought up. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 19, uh, the ESV says, one of the things that God finds detestable is one who sows discord among the brothers. The Christian Center Bible, I, I like it because it puts it this way, one who stirs up trouble among brothers. They just love to start stuff or keep things going. These division-seeking people were to be identified and avoided by the church. We don't know what this false teaching was, but we know it caused divisions. Second, it's because it, caught, it put an obstacle to true gospel proclamation. Paul's stating here that such people are an obstacle to the ministry of reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ. And the word here used as obstacle is that same word he used previously for stumbling block, a trap, or a snare. Simply put, the sinful ways we treat one another. Sinful ways we treat one another and are seeking to cause divisions. It causes us, those who need to hear the true gospel, to be tripped up and trapped from coming to faith in Christ. What does that look like? Here it is. Listen to this. If someone who doesn't know Christ as Savior were to enter your local church and hear murmurs, whispers of gossip, and division within little pockets and huddles of the believers in that assembly, why on earth would they want to be joined to Christ? What's the difference between that local assembly and any other gathering of people on any given Sunday? Beloved, we must avoid such easy traps and become a church that talks to people and never about them. That's got to happen. And here is the real underlying issue with this behavior that Paul urges us to avoid. It's self-seeking. Look at verse 18. He says, they do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. These divisive people are appealing and convincing in their speech. They're motivated, motivated by their own selfish desires, whatever they may be. And they are an obstacle to the gospel proclamation because they take up all the time that they could be promoting Christ to promote themselves. 
That's why Paul says, avoid them. And there's a neat word he says when he says the word avoid them. It's the Greek word that means to keep away from, limit or avoid association with, turn away from, no longer trust. And he uses very strong, very emotional language to convey that this church needs to do whatever it takes to avoid any obstacle, whether it's an idea or a person, to the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. So we've seen so far these two things so far about what the church should be, what an unordinary church is. Here's the last one. An unordinary church is committed to the glory of God as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. The glory of God, the unordinary church is committed to the glory of God as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, in this passage, it's commonly referred to as a doxology, and Paul's presenting his final summary of his uh, gospel that he's been proclaiming throughout this letter. And with that gospel, he says that the gospel is all about a person, the Lord Jesus. You see, Jesus is the focus and emphasis of what we're supposed to proclaim. We talked about this last week. It's not about a step program to be in right with God. It's about a person who has made you right with God. Beloved, we are called to proclaim a person to all men, women, and children. Not a program that if you follow it, confers some kind of salvation. It's not a collection of self-help steps that lead us to being better because we can't be. And it's not a guideline or a set of guidelines or rules that make us good people because there's no such thing as good people and bad people. Biblically, there's bad people and Jesus. And we're proclaiming that person. We are proclaiming the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're proclaiming that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, that he is God in flesh, and that he did what the Bible says he did, that he died for our sins, was buried, and rose again, telling death he no longer wants to be dead anymore and had victory over the grave. That's what we proclaim. That's what we're told to do. In the gospel that Paul's proclaiming, this long-hidden mystery that was alluded to in the Old Testament through prophecies is now fully revealed in Christ so that all men, women, and children might regain the obedience to God lost in the fall. And it's very, very strong language he uses. Paul is saying here that we have to put our mindset back on who Jesus is. And for that, Paul is adamant that God alone deserves this glory. Because of his great love, God designed a plan, the gospel, by which all men, women, and children might be restored to their original position before the fall. And because of this act of God, which shows his sovereignty and his eternal love, he alone is worthy of all the glory and honor that we could ever imagine. Now, as we come to our close in this study of Romans... I want to take just a few minutes, the rest of our time here, to wrap up all we've learned together. I mean, we've gone through this letter over a couple of months, and you remember everything, right? In this letter, Paul has taught us that all of us are separated from God due to our sinful nature inherited by our forefather, Adam, all of us. And that regardless of our upbringing or our religious pursuits, we can't overcome this separation on any merit or strength of our own. And this letter shows us that God knows this. And that he planned before the creation of the world to declare us to be righteous in his sight through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. 
meaning that Christ paid the penalty. And he secured our declaration of righteousness in the eyes of God through his death on the cross. And when we trust to be true that Jesus is who the Bible says he is and that he did what the Bible says he did, we are declared righteous before God and adopted into his family as sons and daughters of God. We've also learned that while we're awaiting an age to come where God is going to restore this broken world, while we await that day, we're going to experience suffering in this present evil age. We're going to hurt. We're going to weep. We're going to experience grief. But that we can see that this suffering is temporal. It's, it's called a momentary light affliction. And we can endure it while gazing ahead to the day when Christ returns to set all things right once again. And in this present age, we are called to allow the Spirit of God to transform our minds so that we can live unordinary lives in service to Christ and others. The way we relate to God, the way we relate to one another, the way we relate to authority, the way we serve. In all of these areas, we are called to be unordinary, just like our master, the Lord Jesus. Beloved, we've had a great few months studying this letter together. And while we've studied this letter together, we have gone through grief. Beloved, we've lost loved ones. We've lost pastors. We've lost friends. We've grieved together. We've hurt together. Sometimes we've grieved one another. But we have a beautiful letter now to instruct us. There's a Bible teacher named Christopher Ash, and I've referred to him a lot in this series. And he takes about three lines to sum up the book of Romans. He says, because salvation is all of God's grace, it is therefore all to his glory. The gospel unites the church, gives assurance in suffering, and makes us eager to preach the word of grace to all without distinction. Beloved, may we, after our months of study in the richness of this letter, now rise up and leave this place with a renewed fervor and passion to proclaim the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ in West Salem, our own communities, our nation, and to the ends of the earth for his glory alone. Will you pray with me? Father, it's humbling to now come to the end of this book. Father, I pray that the words that the people of Salem, both here, watching at home, that they've heard from Pastor Kivett, Pastor Dwayne, myself, through this series. May your word be what's remembered. May it not be any of our commentaries, any of our witty statements, jokes, stories, none of that but what your word has told us. Father, it is clear what you want us to do. It is clear what you've called us to do, and it is clear that you have given us strength to do it. You've indwelled us with your spirit to accomplish it. May we now leave this place in obedience to what you've told us. 
Father, don't let us leave this room today the same. Don't let us leave this church today thinking, what a fun time we had. Please don't let anybody leave this building today think of what a good performance or a good service that Salem provided. But may they leave saying, what a great Savior that was proclaimed today. And God, may they have the desire, may we all have the desire now to proclaim the greatness, the love, the majesty of your son Jesus until our dying breaths. We love you, Father, and we thank you for the opportunity to serve you and worship you today. And we pray this in the name that someday every knee shall bow and every tongue confess to the name that is above every name, to the name that is alone worthy of glory and honor to the ends of the earth, the name of Jesus. Amen. Love you guys.